HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, you're listening to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, uh, coming to you every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45, where we answer all of your cooking questions, you, you know, usually tech-related questions, but we like any, any kind of questions. Uh, we're here live in the studio at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Call in. I'm here today, of course, with Cooking Issues' own Nastasha Lopez, the hammer, and... Uh, you know, she's here to keep me, keep me honest, I guess. Uh, today's, today's show is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Uh, Whole Foods Market is turning 80, and they've partnered with some of its favorite friends for 30 days of Twitter giveaways. Follow at Whole Foods Sync, or not, it's not Sync, Whole Foods NYC. <laughs> I should read this beforehand, really. Uh, follow at Whole Foods NYC and use the uh, hashtag WFMNYCBDay. That's Whole Food Market, New York City. B-Day, WFMNYC B-Day, to qualify and win prizes from Brooklyn Salsa Company, Rick's Picks, make good pickles, uh, Gus Soda, uh, Housing Works, whose bookstore you should support on uh, Lafayette Street in uh, Manhattan, and the New York Botanical Garden, an excellent place to visit, and more. Actually, those really are good places to get prizes. That's a 30th birthday. What did I say? 80. Oh, 80? (laughs) Well, 80, 30, same, same, same. Same thing, 30th birthday. Whole Foods is not yet 80, although more power to you, Whole Foods. May you make 80, uh, right? Anyway. Uh, okay, so uh, today's first question is uh, a follow-up on last week's question from Ryan Santos. The first part of his question has to do with uh, Nastasha. Uh, he was the, um, the person last week who asked for a date. I said, uh, don't even try, don't bother. He still wants to know Nastasha's sign. Uh, it's a Taurus, not Sagittarius Taurus, correct? Oh, I think he was saying that's his sign. Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, his question, his question was, um, we have a new infusion technique. I'm not sure if we talked about it on the radio or not. But basically, what you do is you take a, a whipped cream maker uh, and, uh, that takes nitrous uh, oxide uh, chargers. You put uh, – I usually use liquor, but you can use any liquid. You put something porous with flavor in it, herbs, like cilantro or Thai basil, uh, regular basil, I guess, uh, things like ginger, things like cocoa nibs, anything porous, basically. You put it in with the, with the liquor, 
and you charge it with uh, nitrous, and you, uh, which is laughing gas. You know, most people. It turns out a lot of people who use these things use it to get high, right? They use uh, the laughing I gas. I don't know. Yeah, sure, you don't. Anyway, I really don't. Yeah, okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I, I tried it once in high school, and I didn't actually like it, so uh, uh, I don't really use it to get high. But apparently, there's a lot of people out there who don't even cook who have the equipment to do this. Uh, so maybe they should try it with, uh, with. Um, with liquor. Anyway, so you, you charge it with nitrous, you swirl it around for about a minute, and then when you release the pressure inside the canister, basically, uh, you know, You've, the pressure has forced all the uh, liquor into your into the food that you're trying to get the flavor out of, and when you release it, all that stuff uh, boils back out again, and you have a really very very quick infused uh, liquor. You can see it on our blog www.cookingissues.com. It's a good technique. Uh, anyway, Ryan wants to know. Does this also work with solids? Uh, and the answer is yes. I haven't tried it, but uh, uh, Alex and Aki at Ideas and Food, go check their blog, uh, did it with uh, mozzarella. And there's a bunch of other people out there now who are using this technique to infuse solids with, with flavor. Anyway, uh, so that answers that question, right? Right. Okay. Uh, now let's go to some other email questions. Now remember, we will answer your questions live if you call in at 718-497-2128. That's 718 718- Four nine seven two one two eight. Okay, so Sam Lichtenstein calls in, or Stein, what do you think? Stein. Lichtenstein? Okay. Uh, anyway, Sam wrote in and said, uh, do you uh, disagree or agree with the following statement um, made by uh, a fellow by the name of Chris uh, Onstad, who's the uh, author of a comic book called, uh, a webcomic called uh, Akewood, and he has a, a cookbook. It's actually no longer available on Amazon, and uh, Sam thinks it's a great cookbook. I have no idea because I've, I've never read it. I haven't read any comic book cookbooks, actually. Have you? No. No? Mm-mm. I'm willing to, willing to read it. Anyway, uh, so uh, Chris Onstad, the author, says uh, in the book, once you make a potato chewy, and he's referring to hash browns, uh, how you sh- this should never happen to a hash brown. Once you make a potato chewy, you're doing things to it so wrong that it would be best if you just gave that person the potato and let them take it home and try to make sense of it themselves. Basically, if you make a hash brown that is chewy, you might as well just hand the dude a raw potato and let him go home and work with it because you've done a far worse thing to him. And Sam wants to know if I agree or not. Uh, well, I do agree that a uh, hash brown should not be not be chewy, uh, but um, potatoes can be chewy uh, and and be good. And so the the first thing I thought of was uh, our stretchy potato ice cream, right? Because we make this ice cream and you read about it on our blog. I think I've mentioned it on the radio before, right? Yeah. Where uh, you you blend cooked potatoes, steamed potatoes, into ice cream base and you freeze it, and what you get is this chewy, stretchy potato ice cream and I think is is quite good um, but I'm, I'm assuming that that's not what Sam was wondering about so I did some more research on the internet and uh, most people point to potatoes becoming chewy when you microwave them and other people actually make chewy uh, sweet potatoes uh, by dehydrating them for, for dog treats. Apparently if you have a dog they like dehydrated sweet potatoes you just cut pot- uh, sweet potatoes up and they turn almost into a, a rawhide chewy. So this led me to think well what is it about a microwave that is going to make potatoes chewy. Uh, and uh, this also leads to the, the, the answer that those people who are making the hash browns chewy probably reheated the potatoes in the microwave, right? And, and what's going on in a microwave is you are dehydrating uh, the potato uh, relatively quickly along a fairly large uh, surface because you're actually heating not just the outside of the, of the potato, but uh, a good region of the inner portion as well. So you're very effectively dehydrating the potato in a microwave. So this this chewiness is probably a, a dehydration 
phenomenon, right? Now, uh, this led me to think a, a lot of interesting things. One, uh, perhaps our stretchy potato ice cream is actually a dehydration phenomenon because freezing is actually uh, dehydrating. So what you're doing is you, you take a starch that's got a lot of liquid in it that you've cooked, a potato starch, and in, in this is the ice cream I'm talking about, and you start freezing it. What happens? Uh, ice crystals are forming in the ice cream, and the water is being withdrawn from the starch complex as it's freezing up. So maybe uh, the reason the potato ice cream is uh, stretchy and chewy is we're partially dehydrating the potato starch as it freezes. What do you think, Stasi? Good? Yeah, that's a good... You like that yeah. theory? Mm-hmm. Could be totally wrong, but uh, it's what I was thinking about. Um, and then I was thinking about microwave dehydration in general. I mean, microwave is a great way to dehydrate uh, some fresh herbs. It's also a really good way to make a small quantity of really crisp breadcrumbs. It works a whole lot better than uh, putting bread in an oven and drying it out. You just put uh, you know, thin uh, slices of bread in your microwave, and you slowly uh, microwave it. And what happens, you have to be able to get rid of the water, but what happens is, is that uh, the water heats up and boils off, and then uh, the... It basically, the microwaves focus on the area where there's water. So the whole thing dries out very, very, very evenly. And you get these incredibly crisp uh, breadcrumbs uh, or, you know, uh, croutons, whatever, very quickly. And it's a very good technique. The problem with it is, is that if any area of the bread starts to get uh, warmer, because as soon as the water is gone, um, basically, uh, there's nothing to stop the bread from getting well above uh, well above the, you know, the boiling point. And what happens is if any area starts turning brown, the brown uh, areas, the burnt areas of the bread, absorb microwaves at a ferocious rate. And so they tend to grow very, very rapidly. So if you're not careful, your, uh, your bread can scorch and you can get these brown marks. So you want to be careful with it. But if you, if you slowly keep checking uh, as you're microwaving bread, it's a great way to make make croutons. And this, you know, this is also why if you go to a place that makes sandwiches, this used to happen at this taqueria I used to go to because I love Mexican sandwiches, tortas, and they're one of my favorite sandwiches. Anyway, they would nuke their bread to reheat the bread, and every once in a while they'd over-nuke it, and you get those little interior pockets of hard stuff in the bread, Stasi, you know what I'm talking mm-hmm, about? Yeah. Yeah, gross, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so these are all microwave dehydration things, but there's this blog. It's a vegan blog, and I forget the name of it. It's something like Jugalindo or something like that. You can find it by searching microwave potato chips. But, uh, you know, they seem to have a nice blog, even though they're vegans, they seem to have a nice blog. (laughs) And um, uh, they have a technique for basically making potato chips. Read a slice of potato chips and you put them in the microwave and you you microwave them like 30, 40 seconds at a time. Keep checking them to make sure that they haven't gone, uh, that they haven't turned too crisp and start turning brown. And they dehydrate into these potato chip-like things. They're not actually potato chips because they're not fried, and God only loves a fried potato chip because potato chips are something like, like 30, 40, or even upwards uh, percent oil, the oil they're fried in. And to me, I want my potato chip fried. If I, I don't want a baked potato chip. I've never liked baked potato chips. I think they're an abomination. But it's an interesting phenomenon, this uh, dehydrated potato chip, and it, it actually works uh, quite well. But if you under-dehydrate them, they're very, very chewy. So, uh, Sam, if you want to experiment, very long way of saying, if you want to experiment with, um, with making chewy potatoes, I would recommend something like the microwave or a dehydrator and just partially dehydrate them until they become chewy but not crunchy. And uh, like everything else, you know, um, you, you know uh, what, what's his name? Uh, Chris Onstad, the author of the cookbook, he didn't like... Uh, chewy potatoes because they weren't what he expected. But a lot of times, uh, you know, uh, whether something is good or bad is just a matter of expectations. If you're expecting French fries and you get something chewy, well, that's awful. But if you want something chewy and you like the flavor of a potato, then there's nothing wrong with making chewy potatoes. Right, Stas? Right, yeah, that's good. Right? Yeah, okay. Uh, Oh, another note on microwaves. 
Uh, microwaves uh, we talked about last time because uh, one of our listeners is going to college and basically can only have a microwave. Well, uh, I told her, uh, Stasi said that I was a jerk for suggesting this, but I told her to go out and get a cutting stone made of uh, silicon carbide, throw it in the microwave, and get it super hot uh, to use as a searing plate. Uh, well, the good news is I tested this, and it works fantastically. So go ahead and make your super high heat searing plates using silicon carbide cutting stones. Anyway, uh, I think we have a caller. Uh, caller, are you there? You're on the air. Uh, this is Don. Hey, Don. Hey, how's it going? I'm going well. I was just asking, I was wondering if you heard about this uh, bacon vodka. It's been out a little bit, but I guess it's uh, starting to gain ground. Who's making it? It's I, it's spelled B-A-K-O-N, and it's uh, bacon-infused vodka. Oh, infused. Yep. And I've had it in the Bloody Mary, and it's terrific, but was wondering if you had any other ideas or recommendations of using it. Huh. Something else. Well, I have, I have not, I have not tried it. Uh, I've had many bacon infused uh, liquors, uh, specifically whiskeys, that they make here. Are you in New York or no? Nope, nope. I'm actually down in Marietta, Georgia. Hey, how you doing? Uh, so doing great. The um, so in here in the city, there's was a number of bars doing uh, uh, bacon infused uh, liquor, and they do it with a technique called fat washing. And in fat washing, you mix the bacon fat, preferably a real smoky bacon fat, like uh, like Alan Benton's out of uh, Tennessee makes a really fantastic smoky bacon. And uh, you know, you use the fat from that. Is that's what they used? And you mix the fat up with the liquor, and then you uh, chill it and let it solidify. You take the fat off the top, and you have bacon infused. Uh, uh, liquor, it's, it's fantastic. I've never tried it with vodka, so I'm not sure exactly what I would uh, what I would what I would use it for. I'll say this though: um, that Lance, a guy named Lance, who's the master distiller over at Hangar One, was making a series of meat and other interesting uh, vodkas that were distilled, where he distilled them ra- rather than infused them. And he kept on having a problem with the bacon flavor g- getting rancid as he was distilling it, and he couldn't really do a good distilled one. At least he hadn't the last time I spoke to him, which I don't know, Nastasha, was that like a year ago or something like that? No, like nine months. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it uh, makes sense that it's an infusion. It probably would be good in a, in a Bloody Mary. I, I'm sad to say I've not done too much experimenting with meat liqueurs myself, with the exception of I did a beef and tomato uh, distillate once that I thought was, it, it, it wasn't delicious in the sense of would I go out and order that instead of a beer? No. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, yep. it was it was good in the context that we were serving it as a small short shot next to a bunch of grilled uh, uh, tuna. Uh, sinew, so it was so it was it was good, but this is definitely something that if you like doing this sort of thing, you could definitely try to do yourself. Just save up your uh, bacon fat or any other uh, fat uh, that has a lot of flavor, uh, and then you know melt it, stir it in with your liquor, and then let it uh, you know put it in the freezer and let the fat come up to the top and solidify. And you could probably make your own um, right. and really play oh, around with sure. it. All so, right, great idea. All right, uh, I'm sorry I couldn't give you any more recipe ideas. I just I hadn't thought about it much. Did that, did that partially answer your question? No, well, yeah, I mean, I, I tried doing the uh, just the bacon martini, and that, uh, of course, fell kind of flat, kind of like you were saying, drinking the uh, the meat-flavored one with the tomato all by itself kind of didn't, you know, pl- please the palate, and that's kind of what I experienced. Did, so you, I just put, if did you put any salt in? You know, I didn't. That's, yeah. a, that's a good idea. That might cut back some of that. That weird flavor. Yeah, I would put a little salt in because, uh, you know, anytime you have uh, something that started out either with salt or sugar in it and then that stuff all of a sudden goes away, you kind of miss it. I mean, think about when you eat just bacon fat by itself. It kind of tastes a little bit 
uh, a little bit flat, a little flabby, uh, flabby rather, but not in a fat sense, but you know what I mean, in a taste sense. Yeah, so if yeah, you, just kind of bland. Right. So if you if you throw a couple pinches of salt in that, and maybe even like a little hit of sugar, even though it's supposed to be a martini and not have a lot of sugar into it, I think you're going to brighten up that flavor quite a bit. You might bring it back to kind of where you want it. All right. Well, that was very helpful. So I'll give that give that a whirl. All right. Thanks for calling in. You got it. Thank you. All right. Bye. bye. Um, okay. We have so, another caller. Oh, we have another caller. Mm-hmm. All right. Hi, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Dave. It's Julio, Priscilla Morgan's friend. Hey, good to talk to you. Thanks for calling How in. How are you? Doing well. Sure, doing well. sure. I finally got your number. I was at the restaurant this weekend and picked up one of the cards. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, uh, talking about the French culinary restaurant, I assume. A great restaurant. You talking about the French culinary restaurant? No, no, no. Roberta's? Roberta's, yeah. Oh, Roberta's. Okay, so there's two things, by the way, uh, just for a second. Like, I work at the French Culinary Institute. We have a great restaurant, Lake Hall, which is, like, one of the best deals in Manhattan. And then I do the radio show here out of Roberta's in Brooklyn, which is a fantastic restaurant, does a lot of really great work, grows a lot of their own product, uses really high-quality meats, including the meats from uh, Heritage Foods, et cetera, et cetera. So we're talking about Roberta's restaurant. You had a good meal, I assume? Fantastic. I, I actually went, went in early in the day, went back late that night. Oh, nice, nice. Double, double, hit, double hitting. Great. Double hitting, double hitting. But I thought of you, and I thought, you know, I, I, I may not be calling the right person, but I've been on a diet for about six months, and I'm trying to figure out what desserts I can have that have no sugar. No sugar. Sh- are you on a, I mean, uh, is this a, not a calorie diet? This is a, a diet that you, you can't have sugar, or is it just a calorie issue? Calorie issue. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, you know, uh, he, he is uh, not a uh, large man. He does not really need to diet, so you, you shouldn't worry about it so much. That's the first thing. And uh, right. <laughs> the, 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 the second thing is um, sugar doesn't actually have uh, that, many, that many calories. It's not normally going to be the sh- – depends on what you're eating, but a lot of times right. it's the, the fat and other things in, in the item that are going to basically bulk up the, the caloric content of it. You could do a lot of reduced uh, – again, nutrition, not my, necessarily my specialty. I'm more of a taste and a, and a tech guy. But you can right. you can focus on um, obviously fruit based uh, desserts have a lot of bulk and s- some fruits have quite a bit of sugar but some don't and just a little bit of sugar uh, you know brightens them up things things like uh, berries you know we've done a lot of stuff that's fairly low in calorie and high in flavor um, but they use a lot of technology like we made something that looks and eats um, like uh, pumpkin pie but it's basically peach puree you, but you know it's like not really achievable in a normal kind of restaurant it requires liquid nitrogen and a whole bunch of other uh, you know and a centrifuge and a whole bunch of other uh, fancy fancy stuff but I mean especially now at this time of year you know if you're going to focus on I would focus on things that are satisfying but contain a lot of air with a, with a little bit of uh, sugar and, and fat for instance whipped cream is not that bad for you because it's primarily air you know what I mean? Right. So if you're right. if, if you're doing if if you're like a, a um, kind of person who would go for a, a bowl of fruit and uh, and cream, you know, if you use like a really nice whipped cream, you can get a real luxurious feel, and it's still not going to be uh, that bad on the calories. So I always focus on eating smaller quantities of stuff that's truly delicious, rather than um, you know not being satisfied eating an even larger quantity of things that just don't taste as good. You know what I mean? Uh, and well, you know, I walked past a box of meringues the other day. And I thought maybe Dave has an answer how to make fat-free meringues. Oh well, meringues are often. I mean, a real meringue is often fat. You know, fat-free if it's made. But you not know, sugar. Sorry. Oh, sugar. Sure, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, 
But meringues, I mean, you feel them. They're so light. There's not actually that, that much sugar. Think about it. So if you cook, right, you're taking, let's say you take a, a dozen egg whites and you whip them in, in your KitchenAid and you put maybe a cup of sugar in, right? Now right. you filled your entire KitchenAid bowl with, uh, you know, with meringue and the whole thing only contains a, a cup of sugar, which doesn't have that many that many calories. So on, on a pound per pound basis, meringue is extremely high in sugar. But uh, on a volume basis, and, and a lot of times we tend to eat based on the volume of how something looks, it doesn't right. actually have that much in it. Now, the sugar is there uh, not just as a sweetener, as a structural component. You can move to things that have the bulking capabilities of sugar, but without the calories. But then you're moving into kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Fake sweeteners you know what i mean and so you can you can do that so if you want i mean like i, I tend not to focus on those kinds of problems because like you know where we're, i use a lot of ingredients that uh people some people are horrified by things like xanthan gum carrageenan gum uh methicillus <laughs> things like this right but they my, my whole shtick is that i use them uh to try and make food taste better or be better not to get around um not to get around nutritional or economic problems. And so the, the upshot of that is, is I very rarely get to focus on problems that are primarily related to nutrition or to, um, or to things like calorie counting because it goes counter to my mandate at the French culinary, which is to focus on, uh, on quality first and foremost. Um, right, right, now, right. you know, like, like I said, there are many, there are many, uh, things that have the structural so what, what typically what someone will do is uh, and sometimes they do it for diabetics uh, although there they use um, basically uh, sugars that have the same functional and sweetness as sugar but just don't have the uh, they don't have you know problems with with the insulin um but what they tend to do is they, they add a bulking agent that has no calories, and then they add a high-intensity sweetener that has no calories. So they have to use kind of a two-part problem. Uh, you know, and there's people that have uh, invented, they invented this stuff called Lytes, which I actually don't remember how it's made, but it's a, it's a, a sugar that uh, has no sweetness and no calories, but wh- whips into a meringue just like sugar. And I was experimenting with it to make savory marshmallows, right? But you could also use it in conjunction with a high-intensity sweetener to make a meringue that had kind of zero, zero calories other than, the, uh, other than the egg white protein. Um, right, right. Anyway, I hope this... Is Would honey be a solution, putting honey in the... No, honey has like... Uh, honey is uh, just as many calories, you know, and, and also oh, the, pro- the problem right. with honey is honey is very uh, hydroscopic. It pulls water in, so it's very, very hard to make confections with 100% honey that uh, that don't weep or, or suck water out of, out of the air, which is, what, you know, certain confections use honey and they need honey, like Taroni is uh, characteristically has a lot of honey in it. Uh, but right. uh, other confections, like when you add honey, like if you're making chocolate, you can't really use honey as a sweetener because it's going to pull water in and then ruin the chocolate. I see, I see. But I will, right. I will research this more, and the next time I see you, uh, I, will okay. ha- I will have some decent answers. All right, I'll All right. call you next week. All right, thanks, thanks for calling. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Dave. All right, bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye. We have another caller, Sally? All right, you're a caller. You're on the air. Hi, I um, have been reading a lot lately about ethnic foods and the trending popularity of specific ethnic foods like Indian food growing in popularity, and I've had Indian food in restaurants and really liked it, but I've always been reluctant to prepare stuff like that at home. Right. So I'm wondering if you have any advice or tips on specific Indian dishes that might be a good starter American dish to prepare. Hmm. Okay, so you've never, uh, you're, what kind of Indian dishes do you like? Um, 
I mean, pretty much every Indian dish that I've ever tried, I've enjoyed. I like stuff like butter chicken or um, dal, things like that. Right. Okay, so I would I would uh, shy away from any of the dishes that, for their completion, require specific uh, pieces of equipment. So, for instance, certain Indian dishes require the use of a, sp- a special oven called a tandoor that's basically shaped like a vase and, and a very high heat. And so, things like naan, things like uh, ten, you know, like tip- like typical like tandoori chicken or chicken tikka masala, things like that, to really get the flavor as as you know, just how you would want it in a restaurant requires a uh, a tandoor, right? Not that you okay. can't imitate those at home, but you know, it, to really, if you really want to be satisfied satisfied and make it 100%, those are going to be difficult. So I, w- I would not do those first. Secondly, I would go get uh, a good Indian cookbook if you don't, if you don't have one because the, the best way to, to – first is to eat something like you've done, but then to really immerse yourself in how a, a specific cooking system works. So if you grow up like I did basically you know, where in the house the go-to was some Americanized form of kind of basic Mediterranean Italian-style cooking, right, which that's my upbringing, is – you. you you know what to do when you put a pan on. You know you're going to put in some oil. Some onions are going to go in there. You're going to saute them. Then at the end, you're going to put in your garlic, whatever else. You, know, you, just, you know how it flows, right? So what you need to do is read a couple cookbooks, Indian cookbooks, to just get a feeling for the flow of how Indian cooking works. So you're going to start here similarly with like, you know, with uh, probably ghee, which is the melted butter, and then, you know, things like uh, uh, onions and then, you know, maybe, uh, you know, ginger or whatever spicy things. Then you're going to probably saute your spices because that's a a characteristic part of uh, Indian cooking is to saute the spices, bring out the aroma, and then start adding your other things, right? So like I would read a couple cookbooks. A good one, it's vegetarian, but – Lord Krishna's cuisine, I forget, was the one that I bought a number of years ago. I'm sure it's been surpassed. I'm sure it's dated. But I would get like a, like a fairly authoritative Indian cookbook, one that has enough recipes for you to try, but focus on ones that are more about the mentality of Indian cooking because I think that okay. what you really want to do is immerse yourself in, in the mentality. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, I do a lot of uh, curries. Um, they're also really good when vegetarian friends come over because there's so many good Indian vegetarian dishes out there. You know, it's one uh-huh. of, it's one of the cuisines that is based on uh, on vegetarian dishes, and so you know, and, and actually, if you ever, uh, you know, again, I'm not you know supporting being a vegan, but if you have a vegan friends come over, a lot of times, uh, you know, if you substitute, if you use dishes like, for instance, there's a dish that I really love to make called uh, Navratan curry, right? And I do my own version of it. It's Americanized, but basically it's a sauce uh, where you start by uh, sauteing uh, onions and then you put your spices like uh, it's got coriander, it's got cumin, it's got uh, it's got uh, ginger, it's got some uh, hot pepper in it, uh, regular pepper, you know, a host of other things. But then you also saute cashew nuts in it. And then uh, you after you do that, you add some tomato paste, coconut milk, pineapple, you blend the whole magilla, and then you can toss it with any kind of steamed vegetable you want, and it's delicious. Navratan curry. It's delicious, delicious curry. Uh, And if you you use the coconut milk and you use olive oil to saute instead of butter, you have a vegan dish. And so you can – if you have a vegan coming over and, you know, it's a really good way to make it uh, and have um, have something that's vegan that you also like. Um, Another uh, another – you know, trick with Indian uh, food is really sourcing the ingredients. I think you know, I'd really focus on sourcing some ingredients that are uh, high quality um, and that you know allow you to achieve the authentic taste. So when you're getting a rice, you're going to want to get you know uh, one of the 
the actual rices that they would use in a particular dish. I mean, often you're going to use a basmati or something like that, um, and you know, do it with a little with a, you know, throw some some spices in when when you make it. But again, uh, the key to anything is to first taste what you've done, and so you know whether you've hit the target or not, right? I mean, I've right. never been to India proper. It's one of the places on earth I'm really dying, dying to go. Uh, I've never been, but first, you know, I, I know what American Indian food tastes like, it's, and I know what London Indian food tastes like, but I don't know what Indian Indian food tastes like. But anyway, so you have a target, and that's good. Now figure out the the, the fundamentals of, of you know what it's like for someone to step into a kitchen in India, what they're thinking, what is going to go in the pot, and then the recipe itself isn't so important it's more understanding the flow of how they cook and how they're going to be doing it does that answer your question i hope yes it does actually and with um respect to something you said about the different flavors and the spice mixtures and things that go into indian from what i understand there are many different recipes that can make up a garam masala for example or like a curry powder so just looking at the shelf you know in the grocery store it appears that there's a, a bunch of different products that you can buy that kind of would help along that way. So I'm excited to start trying some of those. Right. And you know, it's funny. You, know, you try a bunch of different ones. They're all very different. Eventually, if you really get into it, you're going to want to make your own spice mixtures because they're just going to be a lot fresher and you can tailor them to your, to your exact needs. Think about it this way. It's, you know, it's, in the U.S., we think about um, – you know, we're amazed at the kind of variation in something like a garam masala, things like that. But you know, right. but if you go to North Carolina, right, the difference of like twenty miles in North Carolina is enough to uh, cause a fist fight over what you're going to put in your uh, barbecue sauce. Okay, right. you know what I mean. And so, you know, when you think about it that way, and then you go to India, with which is huge and has so many people in it you know it's 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 an extremely extremely varied and interesting cuisine you could spend a whole lifetime doing nothing but indian food and it would it would repay your efforts you know what i mean it's like a huge right. it's a huge and interesting a journey that you're embarking on so really regional yeah oh yeah oh yeah very much so very much and and again i only know the 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 surface of it just because i haven't had a chance to travel over there yet but i, I wish you well uh, and i'm Thank sure you're going to have a lot of fun Thanks so much. I appreciate your advice. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So uh, uh, I have another email question coming Wait, in. We should take a break. Oh, we're taking a break. Okay, we'll take a break and we'll come back with uh, more questions on Cooking Issues Radio. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's feel so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother?
Hello, and welcome back to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, here with Nastasha Lopez, the hammer. And we're here to answer your cooking questions for a couple more minutes at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So uh, Jesse uh, emailed in and asked, Do you guys have any advice on slicing mint without turning it black? As soft as I try, it still ends up turning black. Interesting question, Jesse. So what's happening in mint or basil, or anything like this, is that uh, as you're cutting it, you're breaking the cells. As you break the cells, the the enzymes, the cells rupture, and the enzymes within the cells can mix with certain compounds inside of of the mint, uh, and they form brown uh, brown colors. And there's very little uh, you can do to prevent that, uh, with the exception of it's not how soft you cut the – it's not how soft you cut the mint that's going to – cause it. It's how sharp your knife is. So if you use an extremely sharp knife, right, you're going to rupture as few cells as possible. You want to use a very thin, very sharp knife um, if you, and slice it, and you're going to get the minimum amount of uh, blackening of the cells, right? Um, if you, even if you cut softly with a dull knife, you're just mashing it, right? You also don't want to just whack it around on the board. You know, that's why people, they roll their, their leaves up and then they slice, uh, not just gently, but, you know, v- with very sharp knife. Uh, another technique you can use is you can blanch the mint briefly in uh, boiling water. And what that's going to do is just kill the enzymes. Uh, Harold McGee, the author of On Food and Cooking, had a second book uh, called The Curious Cook. Unfortunately, it's not in print anymore. You can get it on BookFinder. Um, but the curious cook has a uh, a long chapter basically on pesto where he deals with just this kind of problem how to make a pesto which is the same problem as mint it's basil but they're in the same family and has the same problem uh, how to keep it bright in a, in a, in a pesto and, and it's really interesting uh, an interesting chapter to read because it, it it really shows what we do in general here uh, in in cooking the way we approach it which is to break it down into a series of variables and then try to figure out what's going on with each one of the variables and the the entire book The Curious Cook is about that it's really uh, it's a shame it's not in print right now because it's a very good companion piece to On Food and Cooking Whereas on food and cooking is more of an encyclopedic reference with uh, some lore about you know cooking, the curious cook is more how to become like Harold McGee, right? Uh, how to think like he does, like uh, or you know for that matter, a similar way to think how we do when we're cooking, which is to break break things into a series of variables and try to understand what's going on. So if you can get a copy of the curious cook and, and read it, it would be it's useful for everyone in a way of figuring out uh, a method of thinking. So uh, blanching the, the mint has the problem that you, um, you, you know, you, you've changed the flavor. It's no longer fresh. You could cut it under alcohol, and that's going to not – but it's in alcohol then. I mean that's what I would do, cut it under alcohol. But uh, it's uh, – it's, uh, you know, that's usually only useful in alcoholic beverages. So it's, it's a difficult problem. Um, McGee experimented with using things like ascorbic acid, and that doesn't really uh, – or ascorbic acid is an antioxidant. It stops many things from turning brown. He didn't get it to, to have that much of an effect in basil probably because it didn't get to where it needed to go fast enough before the browning happened. I bet if he vacuum-infused ascorbic acid into the – the mint leaves, he would have been able to get a decent result, but alas, he did not have a uh, vacuum machine or even an ISI whipper to che- check it out when he was writing the book. But that might be uh, another another way to go. But if you're not, if it doesn't matter that it's not hyper hyper fresh, uh, quick blanch will help. Otherwise, just use an extremely sharp knife and be ginger about it. I'm sorry I didn't have any sort of magic bullet for you, Jesse, but that's uh, you know you chose a. Uh, a tough problem. So, uh, okay. So, on to a 
separate and weird phenomenon. Um, an interesting one, I think. It's called the Impembe effect. Impemba, Impemba. What do you think? Impemba, Impemba <laughs> effect. Uh, and uh, what that is is, um, and, and it's just interesting because it just shows how you can be wrong in so many ways. Um, it's been known for a long time that if you take and you heat water up uh, versus water that's cold, and you put them in the freezer, that it's possible for the hot water to freeze first. Right? That seems counterintuitive yes right right? yes right Right. in fact it seems so counterintuitive that you know you would say things like well that's absurd or ridiculous or impossible or that someone who says that must have a a cog loose right because on a simple (laughs) on a simple level you know physics you think well look the hot water when you put it in the freezer has to chill down to zero right before it it freezes and the cold water starts closer to zero so it's going to get there first it's going to freeze first right it just seems physically impossible that anything else would happen and yet it does uh, and and it just goes to show that this this simple thing, it seems impossible, but is true, was observed by a schoolboy in uh, uh, what country was he in? He was some. It was a country in Africa in the '60s, and he observed this phenomenon as a child and was laughed out of the school. And then later, you know, kept on basically saying, "Look, it's true." And turns out he's right. And now they've named the effect after him. His name was Mr. Mpemba, mm-hmm. right? Mpemba. Anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> Anywho, so the, the thing is, is how can this possibly be true? And it took decades, decades for scientists to actually figure out what the heck was going on in, 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 this, in, in this situation. And the new scientists back in March of this year published uh, or talked, uh, referenced a paper uh, that was written, a 30-page paper written by um, uh, a guy that had spent 10 years researching this problem. And he thinks he's you know, finally come up with the answer. And the answer is this. And it leads to an interesting phenomenon, the phenomenon of supercooling. So supercooling a liquid means that you cool it down below its freezing point before it starts to freeze. And the reason this happens is because ice, in order to form, it needs to have a, a, a nucleation site for a crystal to start. It's very hard for crystals to start forming in water to become ice. So they need these things called nucleation sites. So when you supercool something, you supercool it down to a point where the ice can nucleate, and then bam, the whole thing rises back up in temperature to freezing and starts freezing, uh, starts freezing up. That's how ice forming works. So it turns out that by heating... Uh, a sample, you actually alter the nucleation sites such that they can't supercool as much before they freeze up. So in fact, the mass of ice does freeze uh, faster if it's been, can freeze faster if it's uh, been, been heated. But it, it led me to think then of the concept of supercooling. Right, so there's supercooling and there's superheating. Water is pretty interesting. If you you need to supercool it below zero degrees to get it to start freezing up, right? You can also superheat it uh, above a hundred degrees uh, because it, same way it's very hard for ice crystals to form. It's also hard for bubbles to form, right? So bubbles need a nucleation site. That's why if you have a super clean glassware, like hyper analytically clean glassware, like you use like a chromic and sulfuric acid to melt all of the organic crap out of the inside of a glass, don't do that. But if you did that, then you'd fill it with champagne, you get heart, no bubbles because there's no place for the bubbles to form. So in superheating, what you do is, is you take something that has no nucleation sites, like you've boiled it once, right? You stick it in a microwave, which heats it all uh, without a lot of convection currents because it's heating it around instead of heating it from the bottom. And then you pull it out. It's well above 100 degrees. You throw sugar in it, and it instantly boils and sp- splashes boiling water in your face, and you get horribly scalded and have to go to the hospital. It's a known phenomenon. Anyway, back to microwaves, right? Anyway, so supercooling can also be used, right? 
Uh, and so there's a, a chef, Seiji Yamamoto, in uh, Japan who has a, a, an apparatus to do super cooling. He uses extremely clean glassware, I guess, and he puts water or water-based liquids in, and he chills them well below zero. And then as you agitate them, right, you just, boom, you agitate them, you create little bubbles. Those little bubbles become nucleation sites, and ice starts to form. So he has these really cool demos, and I believe it's on YouTube, where uh, you take super cooled liquid, and he pours it. And as he pours it, it turns to ice, forms a slushy, which is pretty cool. Um, and uh, just... The impemba effect got me thinking about all this. Uh, unfortunately, it's not possible to freeze an entire block of ice solid. In order to freeze an entire block, uh, uh, like a thing of water solid using supercooling, you would have to supercool it down to negative 80 Celsius, and that's just not possible. You can't get really um, – you're probably at best only going to get a couple – you know, 10, 10, 20 best degrees, not even below zero uh, Celsius before it starts to nucleate. So you can, but you can freeze something like a quarter, a third, not probably not a third, probably a quarter of the water into slush, which is pretty cool. But my favorite way to do this is actually a multiple effect is uh, when you put soda in a freezer and you pull it out just before she freezes and then you uncap it and then it all of a sudden turns to ice, right? Uh, and the, and I like that because I like super cold, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, the reason this happens is twofold. One, uh, carbon dioxide is uh, dissolved in the liquid, and that actually lowers the temperature at which it wants to freeze, right? It's a freezing point uh, depression. When you uncap it, all of a sudden carbon dioxide leaves. There's less carbon dioxide. The freezing point's less depressed. So now all of a sudden the liquid's more super cool than it was before. Secondly, those little bubbles provide nucleation sites, a crap load of them, like all at once. I almost cursed on air. I apologize. It forms a crap load of these bubbles all at once, and uh, so the entire thing basically just turns to a mass of uh, flaky ice crystals. So I'm still trying to figure out a good uh, way to use this in uh, in the in the kitchen. You got anything, Nastasha? You think that there's any kind of use for that? I don't know, Dave. No, no, <laughs> no. She's no. probably right, which brings me kind of. To, she's you know, Nastasha's always right about. We, not really always right about these things because there's many things like just I negative. say, negative, just negative, right? <laughs> like she, you know, you, in case you meet her, right? You know, like I say, she, there's many things that she doesn't like for no apparent reason, like French fries, or you know, for some reason she doesn't like French fries, doesn't like potato chips. Except salt and vinegar, which is bizarre, bizarre, bizarre. So you can't really trust her on these things. But in this case, I think she's right. Uh, just because uh, although supercooling is really, really cool, I mean, well, sorry, nifty, right? <laughs> uh, supercooling is really nifty. It's probably going to end up being uh, just uh, a gimmick. And on the topic of just a gimmick, uh, I'll mention one last thing before we leave. And uh, this is a cool gimmick. If any of you out there have liquid nitrogen and a vacuum machine, um, which, you know, you should have both, frankly. You know what I mean? Uh, and this was told me by Johnny Azini, a pastry chef at John George, who in turn learned it from Chris Young, who's working with Nathan Mirvold on the Miracle book that's coming out at the end of the year. Um, if you stick liquid nitrogen into a vacuum machine and then you close the vacuum machine and let it run for several minutes, all of a sudden ice starts for- forming on the top of the liquid nitrogen, okay? Then as soon as you release it, the, the vacuum, the ice goes away. So you can never touch or get to the ice, right, ever. Uh, and, uh, and so Johnny was like, was wondering about this, and I did a bunch of research, and uh, what's happening, and it looks really cool. It's like this like frosty snow ice forming on the top of the liquid nitrogen. What you're actually doing is forming uh, nitrogen ice. And it turns out that liquid nitrogen, which you know clocks in around minus 200 Celsius, in that range, minus 190-something Celsius uh, at atmospheric pressure, um, Solid nitrogen isn't that much colder than liquid nitrogen, right? And so what happens is, is you put the um, 
liquid nitrogen, you let the container come up to or come down to temperature so you're not boiling for that reason too much. Put it in the vacuum machine and you suck a vacuum on it. What you're doing is uh, evaporating a crap load of nitrogen off the top of the uh, vessel and you're actually evaporatively cooling the liquid nitrogen down that extra couple of degrees Celsius and forming solid nitrogen snow on the top of your – and it looks really cool and it's really – you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, so you're – and you can YouTube it if you, if you want to see it. But you're forming solid nitrogen snow but yet you can never touch it. Another, another pain in the butt in kitchen technology. Anyway, so uh, that was this week's Cooking Issues. Join us again next week at, uh, from 12 to 12.45. And another shout-out to Whole Foods' 30th birthday, not their 80th birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday, Whole Foods. Bye. Bye.